Mary Pat Carl has been in the St. Louis Circuit Attorney's Office for well over a decade, and now she's trying to make the leap into that office's top job. The Democrat joins us next on another edition of Politically Speaking. Nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. Uh, I think that is fair to say. say, hands to kiss and babies to shake. (laughs) But uh, no, I think my record speaks for itself. That's a really good question. Hello and welcome to the Politically Speaking Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Rosenbaum, a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio. Joining me in studio in St. Louis is... Colleague Joe Manis. Our very special guest host. Colleague Rachel Lippman. And our very (laughs) special guest today... Mary Pat Carl. A candidate for circuit attorney, a Democrat, and most importantly, a 16th Ward resident. (laughs) Yay! Now that we have have two versus one versus a Webster Grove resident, we can vote all of you off the show. Uh, Adios. uh, This running gag never gets old. Thank you very much for joining us, by the way. Um, Thanks for having me. Absolutely. We're continuing our series of interviewing the four circuit attorney candidates, the four Democratic circuit attorney candidates. As we've said in previous shows, we feel this race is so important for the future of the city and for everyday people. We feel that city residents should get a good sense of who these people are, and what they want to do with the office. Right. So if you're listening to this one, if you haven't listened to the other ones, go on our website and you can get the other ones. So um, tell us a little bit about yourself, your 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 background, and how you got into the And most importantly, <laughs> where I went to high school. school. <laughs> so I grew up in North County. I'm from Florson. And I went to high school at Incarnate Word Academy. Um, I went away to college at DePaul and then came home for law school at, at WashU. Um, I became a prosecutor right out of law school, but I started in St. Clair County, Illinois. Um, after about 10 months in St. Clair County, um, I, I actually ran into Jennifer at an event, and we talked about how great it is to be a prosecutor, and I, I told her I wanted to come home. And so um, the rest is history. I've been in the office since 2003. But how I wanted to become a prosecutor kind of started when I was about 9 or 10, There was a family in my parish in North County that had a foster child, and her name was Casey. Um, And Casey had been burned at the hands of her parents, and I I had never encountered anything like that. Um, And I I didn't know what a prosecutor was. Um, I didn't – there were no lawyers in my family, um, and in fact, no one in my family had ever actually been to college. But I decided, about 9 or 10, that I wanted to like, stand up for the Casey's of the world. I took up that cause. And over time, I figured out that the best way to do that was to become a prosecutor. So what have you done in the circuit attorney's office, and what's kind of your position right now? Sure. Um, everything, basically, is what I've done in the circuit attorney's office. So I did um, traffic and misdemeanors over in St. Clair County. So when I came into the circuit attorney's office, I started right in felonies. So I prosecuted um, gun cases and drug cases and property crimes for um, a little less than a year, I think, and then went to the domestic violence unit. Spent two years um, in domestic violence. Then I went to uh, what we now call the Special Victims Unit. Mm -hmm. That's child abuse, child sex crimes, and adult rapes. I was there for about four years and then um, went to the Violent Crime Unit, which also has been rearranged and doesn't exist in its same way, And where I uh, I did robberies, um, high-level assaults, and homicides. And now I'm the lead homicide prosecutor, which means I manage all the attorneys who also try homicides and carry a homicide caseload myself. 
during your time, because you've been in the off office for quite a while, is there anything that you've noticed, either in the in the way the city things are going in the city as far as crimes, or um, how the office responds? I'm asking that because you know there's been wavering perceptions about whether or not St. Louis is safer or worse than it used to be. So I'm interested in your take on that. Sure. Well, I think um, I think judging whether it's it is more safe or less safe is kind of what, what matters is, is that we have areas where people are living in fear. And I think that's right. that's the most important thing. And it's unacceptable. So I think, you know, I know there are a lot of people that have been spending time analyzing statistics. But what's really important is that nobody deserves that and that we need to respond to that. When when did you kind of start thinking that you might want to be a successor to Jennifer Joyce? Like, did did you always want to rise to that level? Or when did you think that you might want to run for office rather than just continuing in, in kind of a uh, civil service prosecutorial role? So I think my entire life, whether it's been like part of a like part of a group in college or, or some, you know, being passionate about something in high school, is that when I'm all in about something, when I'm extremely passionate about something... I gravitate towards leading it. Um, so, I mean, talk, you know, way back when I was president of my sorority. I mean, it's not comparable, but I it's what I loved at the time. And so I wanted to lead that group. So I had tossed around the idea. I mean, early on in the office, a couple of people said something to me. Have you ever thought about it? And I thought, well, no, I'm a prosecutor. I don't, I don't do politics. I don't run for things. I'm a prosecutor. That's what I want to do for the rest of my life. But there had always there had been some conversations over the years, and it had kind of been in the back of my head. But I kept returning to I'm not a politician. I don't know much about politics. Being a prosecutor is what I know. But then when when Jennifer and I had a conversation, when she indicated that she was going to retire, um, and she, you know she gave me the highest compliment in the world, which she said, I th- I think you can do this, and I think the city needs you. And so I jumped at the chance. Now, I think that we, we, we're going to have three other people. But one thing that the three other contenders don't have is Jennifer Joyce's endorsement, mm-hmm. which you do have. Now, I, I don't know what would have happened if she would have run for re-election. My guess is she would have been pretty sizably favored because she's an incumbent and she has a lot of name recognition. And while all prosecutors have detractors, she does have you know a base of support and fans. So with that in mind, how, how do you think that's going to impact this race that she has endorsed you? And do you think it's a good thing, a bad thing? I'm assuming you think it's a good thing. Otherwise, you probably wouldn't have accepted it. But what's, what do you think the effect on the race will be? Um, I, it's an honor to have it. It's, it's absolutely an honor to have it. I mean, she's been a dedicated public servant for 16 years, and there's no one that knows this job better than Jennifer. So um, it's, it's a huge honor to have her endorsement. It was a huge honor when she sat down and said, I think you should do this. Um, it meant a lot to me. And so I do think, you know, is it an advantage? Sure. People know her name. They value her opinion. But that doesn't mean that I don't have to work hard. And, you know, I think in the end of the day, people are going to want to know who I am and they're going to want to know in, about my experience. Now, um, as I've mentioned before, you have by far the most uh, money in, in your campaign account right now compared to your three rivals. Now, money does not mean everything, but it means something. Do you think that that is tied in part to the fact that um, Joyce has endorsed you? Um, is there anything that you hope to do with this? And just and just to kind of just to add on to that, you have put some of your own money into Correct. this race. I think about one hundred twenty-five thousand dollars. But even if you took that money out, you would still have raised more money than your other three opponents. But as I was joking before the show, that one hundred twenty-five thousand dollars still buys mailers and organizational 
stuff and parade candy, but <laughs> all that stuff. But but continue, Joe. Sure, I I do have the most money in this race. I have raised the most, and I don't. I think that maybe in the first couple weeks or maybe the first months, having Jennifer's endorsement did help. Um, I think it it maybe it makes people pick up the phone when I call them. But in the end, I think that I've earned. I earned the money by talking about my experience. People want an experienced prosecutor. Um, pe- I have a I have a record to show people when I'm raising money of what I've been doing in the prosecutor's office for the last 13 years. Now, how do you see the race uh, laying out, especially since there's four of you? And in a four, it can always be somewhat dicey over who ends up you know, winning. I've seen many cases where the favored candidate by far ended up getting, you know, and ended up running second to somebody else who surprised people. I'm just interested in your take on this. Well, you know, again, I keep coming back to it, but I think that it's important is that I think if I can get the message to voters that I've got the most experience in the race, and not just by a little, but if you add the experience of every single one of those three people together, I have more than they have combined. And not just in years, but in the types of cases I've tried, um, how many homicides I've handled. Between the three of them, they've handled one homicide. And I've been trying homicides for a decade back to when I was in special victims. So um, in the end, I think that as long as I can deliver the message to voters that um, I've been fighting for victims for 13 years, um, I think I can win this race. Why is why are homicide trials kind of the metric that you're focusing on? Why is it um, important to say that that's kind of the way to, to fight for victims? Sure. I, I actually, I guess um, that's a great question, Rachel, because I don't think it's the only metric. Um, in addition to trying all of those homicide trials is that I spent a long time in special victims, which are the toughest cases to try. Um, you're talking about convincing a jury yes. by putting a kid mm-hmm. on the witness stand. Um, you never know how that case is going to go. And people have a hard time convicting somebody on the word of a child. So um, I think it's it's my experience is not only just those homicide cases, but also all that time I spent in special victims and that I've handled basically every type of case in the office. And when I ran through, I even forgot to mention that I've even handled white-collar investigations, and I've assisted them on a number of things. So my experience is beyond the homicides. It's that I've touched basically every area in the office. I think homicides come up because that's what's in the news, and that's what people are seeing, and that's one of the biggest problems that we're facing. Um, Unfortunately, I guess, um, those special victims cases don't don't generally make the front page of the paper, though I I believe they're also a problem. Now, uh, Jennifer Joyce and Chris Coster, we've even talked a lot lately about gun violence. And and, uh, obviously, the St. Louis Circuit Attorney often finds himself, you know, front and center in this. I'm interested in your take on how you would battle it. Are there things that you would do differently than how the office is handling some of this now? I think, um, I mean, we're up against a gun culture. Um, There's been this romanticizing of guns in, um, with, with young people in our community. And I think that that is one of the ways that we need to tackle gun violence. And so, you know, in the last year, Jennifer's headed in this direction, but I, I believe in it and I want to expand it. And I think that we need, you know, right now we have the gun diversion program, but I think that we need to look into restorative justice programs because I think that we need to acknowledge that 17, 18, and 19-year-old kids think differently than adults. And so we need to treat those kids differently in the system um, and get to the heart of of the gun culture. Can you give an example of that? I mean, what exactly do you mean they think differently? Um, I mean, the, their brains aren't fully developed yet. The, they're more impulsive. They don't tend to think of long-term consequences like a, 
like a 30-year-old might think of a long-term consequence. So one of the things that Joyce and also Jackson County Prosecutor Gene Peters Baker have run into, first of all, is an incredibly Republican legislature that doesn't really want to restrict guns at all. And, and frankly, regardless of who the governor is, whether it's one of the four Republicans or whether it's Chris Coster to many extent, they're not going to find a very friendly executive that wants to sign restrictions into law. So I wanted to know if you are circuit attorney and you're going to be one of the most high profile elected prosecutors in the state, how are you going to overcome those pretty strong obstacles to bringing restrictions to firearms? Well, I think one of the one of the ways that we can kind of attack the gun violence is to work on what we can, which is illegal guns, because I think everybody that's a common ground that we can all agree on, that there should not be illegal guns and that guns shouldn't be in the hands of kids. So I think cracking down first and, and accomplishing what I can there would be an important first step. Now, Coster talked about gun courts and thought, thoughts about that. Thoughts about gun courts? Yes. Um, you know, I think that they, they can be effective. Um, I think that what I like about gun courts is it takes us out of that kind of cookie-cutter idea of prosecution and allows judges to look at individual cases, which I think is the way the criminal justice system should move. Um, but I, it's not the end-all, be-all. I think that we can accomplish a lot of these things that we want to without, with or without a gun court. We've heard a lot of rhetoric about guns, gun crime, bonds for it, kind of disputes between the police chief and the judges on this issue of bonds for gun crimes. Where do you stand on some of what Chief Dotson has said about um, what you guys can get from these judges to try and keep people who have committed gun crimes behind bars? So, I, th- you know, I, bonds have been a, a hot issue. And when it comes down to what the actual legal definition of the reason a bond is set is to secure somebody's attendance in court and um, to, if we believe someone is a danger to the community, to keep them from becoming a danger. Those are what the, the, that's the criteria the courts are supposed to consider. So, you know, my job is to make that argument to the court on each individual cases with the factors in front of me. So, um, you know, and I, I can't, I cannot comment on judges and judges' decisions. Not because I don't want to or not, but because ethically, that's what the law says. I could get in trouble and running for circuit attorney without a law license is, is, <laughs> would be extremely difficult. It would, it would be tough. It, it would, would be, be tough. You ha- You'd have to have a law license to do the job, I would yeah. think. Yeah. So, so I'm going to refrain from commenting on what I my opinion on judges. And here's the thing. There are 31 of them. So I think to pain in the broad stroke probably isn't fair either. So, um, you know, I concentrate on what can I do and right. what I can do is I can make those arguments to the court on each individual person that I believe is either a threat to the community or won't appear in court. And, and I'm asking this to all the candidates because when I read Dotson's blog. Latest blog latest on the blog, issue. And I was in Florida, so I was getting like a tan at the time. I, I it, You know, my impression was it was a kind of a subtle attack on the nonpartisan court plan because he talked about a lack of accountability for judges. And right now, uh, basically, there's a process where three judges are put before the governor and the governor chooses it. It's not direct elections. Now, this would have to have a constitutional change. This is not something that you could do. But do you have faith in the nonpartisan court plan staying in St. Louis right now? Because that will have a big impact on the types of judges you would face if that was changed. I'm interested in your opinion on that. I am fine with the nonpartisan plan. And I, I do think that the the judges are accountable to the public. Um, and I encourage people to come down and check out the courthouse. I mean, um, and 
I think that as as circuit attorney, I also want to make that process as transparent as possible. Um, people do have the right to vote judges out, and yeah, I think it's like every twelve years, correct? Six, six, I think. Yeah, I don't think it's 12. Um, So, you know, I encourage people to get to know their judges and judge them each individually and and make decisions on them. Well, I want to talk about a a big issue that I think is not only going to be a big issue in this race, but pretty much the governor's race and the attorney general's race. And that is basically existing in a post-Ferguson world and how law enforcement matters in that. I think that it's become pretty clear that there's a pretty big divide in some parts of St. Louis and the St. Louis area between the African-American community and law enforcement. I'm interested as as one of the people that is in kind of the law enforcement realm, how you're going to bridge those divides and what sort of policies you're going to bring to engender trust within the African-American community. So I, I think to, to trust is to know. I think it's really difficult to ask people to trust a system or to trust lawyers that sit downtown in a building. But I think the more uh, people have the opportunity to, to get to know the people that are involved in the criminal justice system, the circuit attorney herself, or the assistants or the investigators that work in that office, the, the, the we can begin to bridge the gap. So one of the things I want to do is to get us out of that building and get us into the community as much as possible. Jennifer started a great program over a decade ago of going to neighborhood meetings. It hadn't been done before. And so we started sending liaisons. And now that that is a well-oiled machine of having that communication and that, it's time to get beyond neighborhood meetings. It's time to find other ways to get into the community of the people that won't walk into a church basement for their local community meeting. Or even in some neighborhoods, the meetings are held in the police station. And there's a lot of people that might simply have a traffic warrant that aren't going to walk into a police station. So we need to find opportunities for us to interact. I think one one reason I believe in this is because of the difference we've seen now that we're responding to homicide scenes. Now that the assistant circuit attorneys who handle homicides are there from the beginning, standing there that evening or that morning mm-hmm. or afternoon, um, and and forming those relationships from the beginning, we're having a greater success rate in issuing cases because our witnesses are trusting and staying with us the entire time. So that's proof to me that that when we get to know each other on an individual basis, um, we start to bridge those gaps. Now, there's been talk a lot about more witness protection. Since what is what are you seeing? What are the, the staff that report to you seeing, especially since they're on the uh, scene so early after a crime? So witness protection is is my passion in this uh, in this race. It's it's one of the the biggest things for me um, because I we do not currently have a formalized process of protecting anybody. And then I started responding to these homicide scenes. And, you know, over the years, you could have known that people are afraid. But when you're sitting there that night and somebody's scared to go back to their street and they ask you the question, are you going to be there with me or who's getting my kids off the bus tomorrow at 3 o'clock, I think we have to answer those questions. I think we have to be able to say – this is what we're willing to do to protect you um, if we want people to come forward, if we want people to stay with us through the process. So um, I, one of the first things that I will work on as circuit attorney is to formalize a witness protection unit, to put a web of care around people that are willing to stand up to violence. I, I want to ask a more general question because you, you probably see this firsthand. So one of the things that I noticed that living in St. Louis Hills, which is a great neighborhood, I love it, but, you know, when I when I've noticed like the reaction to law enforcement and police 
it's probably a lot different there than other parts of the city which are more racially or ethnically diverse. I mean, that's what I've seen. As someone who goes to a lot of these homicide scenes, do you feel like there there's a lack of trust between law enforcement and the African-American community? Do, you, do they not trust the police? Do they not trust prosecutors? What's kind of been your, your sense of where we are now, basically? I think, I think it's varied. I, are there people who don't trust prosecutors and police? Absolutely. There are. But there are also plenty of people who, when tragedy has struck their lives, when it's the worst day, um, you know, there are, there are two things that, you know, they care about. They care about, they want to know, do you care about them? Do you understand the pain that they're in? Um, and, you know, and two, can you get justice for them? I think in the end, that, that's what people are looking for. We've also heard a lot of talk about um, trust being a huge issue and conflicts of interest with officer-involved shootings, officer-involved killings. And we're asking this question of everyone, too. What about special prosecutors to investigate those cases? So I would look at each case on an individual basis. Um, I'm not opposed to special prosecutors, but I have a question that hasn't been answered that I'm not willing to say in every case I'll appoint a special prosecutor until I can figure out how to answer that question. And that's how do we hold special prosecutors accountable? Mm-hmm. How do we make sure that they're answering to the public? Um, and and so I'm hesitant to just say let's turn everything over to a special prosecutor when that role and that person isn't defined and then what we do with that person if – they don't if they do something that is completely contrary to the law or what the public thinks is right. So, um, but I also I, I I weigh the other side too. I understand that whether or not I personally feel there's a conflict, that some people perceive the conflict, and and that is something that we have to overcome. So I would examine each case as it comes before me. And look, if I think if there's one part of me, one iota, that I think I can't be fair here. Um, then I'll I'll give it to a special prosecutor, but um, overall I I know that I'm accountable to the people who elected me, and I've spent my entire 13 year career um, very proud of the fact that it's my job to wake up every day and do the right thing, and that's not going to stop when I'm an elected. Yeah, because we've we've asked that question not only to circuit attorney candidates but also lawmakers and St. Louis County Prosecutor Bob McCullough, and they've brought up some real logistical mm-hmm. issues with appointing a a special prosecutor, one that is a little bit humorous, but I think that actually is a a fair point, is McCullough himself said, well, what happens if I'm elected attorney general? Because that's one of the possibilities, you know, the attorney general is a special prosecutor, which I think he was trying to say is if there's somebody who is seen as very pro-law enforcement who becomes attorney general, which is not out of the realm of possibility, many people who would be receptive to that idea uh, may not see that as, as a good outcome because it doesn't seem as independent as, as it could be. So I guess does it really just depend on who the actual special prosecutor is? And, and that could be one of the things that is kind of a lingering question for this entire debate. Right. That's one of the factors. That is absolutely one of the points is that, you know, is if, if we're talking that the special prosecutor is the attorney general, um, is does that really solve the problem? Does that head in the direction, you know, does it, does it counter the concerns that people have um, or is it just a different prosecutor? And, and in a lot of jurisdictions, the attorney general knows the police in those counties just as well as, you know, I would know St. Louis Metropolitan Police Department. So it doesn't really 
it doesn't really solve any of the issues. And and so I think that we need to keep having this conversation. I'm confident that with all the great minds that are concerned about this is we can come up with a solution. But I'm just not, because I haven't seen that solution, I haven't seen where and how that person's going to be accountable, I'm not ready to say, yes, let's have a special prosecutor come in every time. And then you also have the question of, you know, it's great until you don't get the outcome that you want. It's this idea that it promises an outcome that groups pushing for special prosecutors might desire, and there's no guarantee that that's the case either. So then do you go back to what the system is. Yeah. And I think that, and correct me if I'm wrong, Rachel, and and correct me if I'm wrong uh, to our special guest here, but Joyce has changed the way she's she's handled police shootings Mm -hmm. pretty recently Mm -hmm. to where I don't think she waits for the police (laughs) to investigate anymore. And I, I think that was a pretty big change that I don't think satisfied everybody, but a lot of people within the African-American community liked, essentially. Is that correct, by the way? Yeah, it was sort of a two-tier change. It was first that they would wait for the police investigation to be completed and then review it. And that started just after um, Michael Brown's shooting in August of 2014. In fact, the one in the city that followed Michael Brown's shooting, Jimmy Powell, was the first one to be done under that protocol. And then last August, when Mansur Ball Bay was shot and killed, they started investigating at a parallel point, And that's how it's happened since then. So do you think that that was a good decision by Joyce to handle police shootings that way? Absolutely. I do. And I, I you know, I think we've seen an evolution of process. And, and again, to my point that we keep having the conversations and we keep making it better because, you know, in the in the the last in Bombay, not only did she issue a report, but brought in people to, to seek understanding and have have those difficult conversations. And I think that I think that's important. I mean, you're accountable to the public and you need to sit down and have those conversations about why you decided what you did. And now in the debate about special prosecutor, as in some other things, is the public or do you think the circuit attorney needs to do more to explain that a lot of this stuff depends on the legislature? Right now, the legislature is not necessarily that keen on the special prosecutor thing, although in some rural areas they might be because yeah. they have and problems. And it's, it's, it's bipartisan opposition, too. Not only did I mention McCullough, I asked McCaskill about this, who's a former Jackson County prosecutor. She's not really in favor of that idea either. Well, but, but my point is, is that this is being you know, thrown out and people talk about it, but if the General Assembly isn't going to act on it, it's kind of you know people talking and not getting anywhere. So um, I, I view Joyce's action as saying, okay, here's something we can do without General Assembly to at least try to respond to some of the concerns. Are there other things that the office can do without having to go to the General Assembly to change the law? I mean, that, that could either help the public perception or at least increase trust. I do. I think... So something I, I very recently started to look at, um, and I need a, to do a lot more exploring on it, but I think it's worth the conversation, is to have special assistants come in and assist the people in the, the officer-involved shooting unit within the office so that you do have an outside perspective as part of that um, part of that report, part of that decision, and then ultimately part of that report. Um, I think by you, you can designate people as special assistants and, um, you know, I think having another perspective on those cases um, would be great and I think could increase public trust. So I'm curious because if you are circuit attorney, you will get to restructure the office in pretty much any way you see fit. 
What are kind of generally your ideas about making changes to how the office is organized and how it handles certain crimes or how it operates? Um, well, one, well, to to have the witness protection unit that I want, we're going to have to we're going to have to rearrange. I have to look at um, our victim services unit would then would kind of form into or overlap a little bit on a lot of the crimes with the witness protection unit. So that would be the first thing I would I would tackle as far as is rearranging. And are there any sort of initiatives that Jennifer has started that you know you want to keep or anything that you want to change or maybe bring in or enhance? Sure. The Crime Strategies Unit has been doing so great. So that's the unit where we gather information about the crime drivers in the city of St. Louis. Um, We look at social media. We look at other things um, and really identify who's connected to who and um, who who really who is violent and who is eligible for diversion or who would be better from an alternative sentencing program, and they're doing great work. They're getting us better information. We can make better decisions. Um, one thing that I would want to expand is to use that crime strategies unit to build conspiracy cases. One of the things that uh, other candidates have talked about is infusing racial, ethnic, and life experience diversity into the office by trying to, trying to hire more African-Americans, more Bosnians, more Latinos, more people from the LGBT community. What would be your strategy to to make sure that the office is on the right direction for that? I think that we need to start inspiring a passion for it younger. I mean, when you talk about getting out into the community, I think letting younger people in, in all across the city um, know what we do and know what it means to be a prosecutor. Um, you know, if if a young kid is is growing up and aspires to be an attorney and is picking what direction they want to go to, um, I think that there we need to change the perception of what the circuit attorney's office is and what we do down there. Um, and I think inspiring inspiring um, you know African Americans and Latinos and Bosnians to want to do that work um, because you know I mean the big firms come calling with when you're in law school and you're you're faced yeah. with that debt. <laughs> And and you look at okay, well, I could go and make six figures, or I could make thirty five, forty thousand dollars a year. It, that's a hard decision to ask people to do. So you have to want it. You have to think um, this is what I want to wake up every day doing. So we need to start with people that are aspiring to go to law school and and instill that passion. Well, we would appreciate you being on the show. And Joe, one key question. Jennifer Joyce has made a name for herself for being a very vigorous tweeter. Uh, what's your philosophy on tweeting? Well, I, I tweet a little. I'm not as I'm not as good as Jennifer, um, but you know, in the end, I, I do like anything that that reaches the community you serve. So I will try to follow in those shoes of of tweeting with what's going on in my life and in the office. Well, I have to say, uh, not only does Jennifer Joyce tweet a lot, she has an excellent profile picture. I wonder who ended up taking that picture, by the way. <laughs> I think he's sitting in the uh, driver's seat of this podcast <laughs> right wearing, now. He's wearing pink socks and, today. And, with the pink shirt. And by the way, for our listeners, uh, uh, she asked for permission to use it, and I said yes. So there's no uh, nefarious conspiracy there. But thank you for coming on our show. We appreciate the time and 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 uh, attention on this important race for all of our stories, stlpublicradio.org. 
Follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. Follow Joe on Twitter at Jay Manis. That's J M A N N I E S. Follow Rachel on Twitter at, at R Lipman. Uh, two P's, two N's. And how could we follow you on Twitter? Mary Pat Carl. It's that simple. It's that easy. We'll be back <laughs> next time. Until then, so long. Bye.